Well, it hasn't happened yet. I'm Brian. I'm CJ. And I'm Isaac. And today we are joined by Melissa Florabix, the repeat guest, our second ever. Thanks for coming back on the pod, Melissa. Yeah, it's great to be with you. And CJ, I don't think you were on last time. So nice to be with you this time. Yeah, I loved uh, your last episode. So I'm excited to be here. And did you want to introduce yourself for... I don't know, people who maybe didn't catch the last episode. Sure. Melissa Floor-Bixler, and I am uh, the pastor of Raleigh Mennonite Church in Raleigh, North Carolina, and the author of a couple books um, and lots of articles, but the most recent book I wrote is called How to Have an Enemy, Righteous Anger in the Work of Peace, and it comes out in July. And then do lots of things in our community that sort of get sort of unpacked in the book as well. Well, part of the reason we wanted to have you on, Melissa, is to talk about your new book, which you can also get, I think, on the Kindle store on June 1st. Yeah, a surprise early release on the e-format. So I've, so I've read the book and it's really great. And it's very... I feel like... I mean, the scope of the book is huge. You've, I feel like you take on every single thing that white uh, churches need to need to talk about and have conver- hard conversations about. So we just, can we start off by telling you telling us about the book and why you wrote it? Sure. Yeah. Anything I write is just because I haven't found an, sort of the things I'll put together that have been useful for me. And so it's an opportunity to explore a question that I have. And then sometimes people have the same question and want to be a part of that conversation too. So the this the the question that sort of was emerging I, and as I think it was for a lot of us after 2016 was what the hell trying to like figure out how we ended up with a white supremacist and as the president of our country and after Barack Obama it's like this is like the, I think the question that's on so many of our um, radars after 2016 and trying to sort of do the dissection of that and what that means for us, uh, especially as people in majority white churches that like the Mennonite church. And I think, you know, as the years went by and we started to, um, white Christians started to grapple with that more and more, um, there was an interesting shift, at least that I felt like I noticed to, oh, wow, the real problem is just that we're so divided. And so there was this, proliferation of books around depolarization and talking to the other side and these organizations like rose up to like have people share their ideologies with one another and that was going to you know bring bring people back together around some sort of centrism or renewed sort of identity that that's outside of politics and um that just sounded really bad and also so inaccurate for really like the like the very serious medicine that we needed to um, even begin to have this conversation. And for me, really, the locus of that um, in the Mennonite Church is around enmity because um, we're phobic of the idea of having enemies in the Mennonite Church. Pacifists. Know peacemakers like want to you know create communities where we like live in a world with no enemies, and so for me, for my community, that was really the place to sort of that to dig in, and that the results of that were how to have an enemy. 
Yeah, talking about a proliferation of calls for unity, I saw an article earlier this year that was titled, Can We Keep Politics Off the Golf Course in 2021? (laughs) (laughs) A burning question for our times. (laughs) It does seem like that would be one of the easiest places to keep politics out of. (laughs) Yeah, this, uh, let me like go into this like white enclave and of socioeconomic sort of segregation to enjoy a game that is not accessible to the rest of the world. Anyway, yeah, it just cracked me up. Like, hey, hey, guys on the on the golf course drinking Mick Ultra and you know whatever else. Can we just like not talk about the election? <laughs> um, so, Melissa, one of the things that you start off, I mean, you set the groundwork in the book really well by talking about sort of the church's role in or relationship to power and the the theological framework that you've learned over the years from a number of scholars and theologians that helps challenge that. So um, you specifically, I think, use the language of theology without power, without domination. Can you talk about what difference that makes for the church? Sure. I, you know, I, I really cut my teeth in organizing with the IAF and the Saul Linsky model of organizing, which, you know, I think there's good things about it and, and bad, but, but one of the, one of the uh, pieces of that that's really been central to my formation is asking questions about power, how power is structured and the absence of power, especially in, um, in the church. Um, so you know, I, I, the other thing that sort of Alinsky says that I think is true is that that power isn't good or bad. It's just a, it's just a force. It, you know, it's poder to get things done, right? And so, so instead of what I think is often sort of handed to us is, oh, power's bad. You know, not having power, laying down our power is good. And and actually, that's that's not really how things work. It's just that <laughs> power just gets concentrated in one place and. Um, and, and that we don't talk about it and we pretend it's not there. Right. And so I, I hope that we, this book sort of opens us up to conversations about how power is always present um, through economics and class, but I think first and foremost because of race. Um, and so, uh, yeah, wanting to ground us in, in that and even the language that we bring in to talk about the, the ways that we the expectations we have about the structure of conflict, right? And so I have a I have a section where I talk about the historic roots of the language of tribalism, right? This is which is to demean tribes like as over against enlightenment rationalism, right? That you can somehow step outside of your body, like you you civility, right? The the civilized ones that you don't you you don't have an emotional or personal investment um, in this issue. You can step outside of it. And how we those are that's all language that that has power attached to it. It's, it has genealogy and power attached to it. And um and the first step of that is beginning to actually sort of deconstruct what we what we're actually asking for people, which is basically for them not to have bodies, like to, to not exist materially. Um, we just want ideas. And I'm a materialist, so I don't like that. <laughs> it's it, it's uh, perfect that you mentioned that, you know, that dynamic around the word tribalism is this totally negative thing. You know, living in Charlottesville, 
in 2017, I think I've mentioned this on the pod before, but it deserves repeating. After August 12th, which was this flashpoint for you know, the language of tribalism and like, oh, we're so divided, both sides were wrong, yada, 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 call for, calls for unity. The city of Charlottesville put out a marketing campaign for the city because suddenly we had this like, you know, public image is the place where white supremacists gather. They put out a public sort of marketing ad for tourists to come to Seaville. And it was a picture of like white folks in our gentrified downtown with the word over it, civilization. And instead of civilization, it said Seaville and then ization. So um, the response to August 12th was to remind everybody that uh, Charlottesville was a part of like civilization and, you know, that white sort of enlightened bourgeois activity. So it's just uh, one of the, I don't know, it's just a perfect example of exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Wow, they know what they're doing. My goodness. Isaac, that story's crazy. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Also, uh, like like having lived in a different part of Virginia, the idea that someone would think like Charlottesville is uncivilized is like a little... (laughs) Mm-hmm. A little ridiculous, um, but I, I also loved what you said, Melissa, about how um, about how that that language uh, of power wants wants people to just be ideas and not have bodies. I think that's really relevant, especially to like um, the wave of anti-trans legislation that's going on across the country right now. Um, like a lot of it is really predicated on this idea that like, oh, we we think that trans people exist. We just don't think that your bodies should be allowed to exist in public and we're going to legislate our way out of letting kids change their bodies in any way or prevent their bodies from changing. And I haven't heard it articulated quite like that before. So thank you for that articulation. It's also, it's it's present in a lot of like, especially the early like James Cone stuff too, where he is talking about, and I, I always find it to be like a really amazing and devastating critique of like white liberals of the idea that they're the ones that want to take this into the idea and that the only way you can be involved in is by making it more material. Um, otherwise, it just kind of lives up in this headspace and and how that is a sort of privilege and power. So yeah, it, it's interesting to see how it all still kind of um, connects even with, you know, from what you're talking about to across multiple different kind of issues that were, you know, that are always seeming to come up now. Get more specific about this though. Um, you know, the the call for civility or unity or whatever, you tell a really, a story I'd never heard about before, about two people, Anne Atwater and C.P. Ellis in the book, is sort of the exact opposite of that narrative. Could you tell the listeners that story? Because it, it blew me away that I'd never heard it before. It's really great. Yeah, and actually, I, it's such um, lore here in North Carolina that it, I was like, I'm sure everybody's heard this story. So I was glad to hear that at least one person hadn't heard it before. But yeah, this was a um, when desegregation was happening in uh, Durham, North Carolina in the 1960s. And North Carolina, late, late to the late to the sort of movement of desegregation, even after Brown versus Board of Education, they're stalling, stalling, stalling. Um, and the way that the city council decides that they're going to tackle the issue um, is that they're going to set up like a, um, a working group to talk about how to do desegregation of schools. And so who do you need for that? 
you need the grand cyclops of the Ku Klux Klan and a black activist to sit together on this on this panel and work this out. Um, which is just, I mean, it, it, like today, I think like, oh wow, a member of the KKK, um, and, and just a reminder of how normal, like that, like how what a society that was um, in the South at this time, um, incredibly respectable church-based society. And so they put this group together um, and Atwater, C.P. Ellis were sort of the, the leads on this team. Um, and, you know, I, I think what, what is often told about this story is this the story of transformation, right? They come to recognize that, you know, the same issues that C.P. Ellis is experiencing in white working class uh, Durham at this time, the same pressures are replicated in, in the Black community. There's this real sense of, knowing that both communities are struggling with their children's futures. And there's this, and then CPL is famously at a city council meeting, tears up his Ku Klux Klan card and commits to this life of standing. I, you know, I, I wouldn't say activism, but um, of a kind of like turning his life around um, and, and putting his life in the side of the work of Black liberation in Durham. That's often where the story sort of um, leaves off. Um, but I think what happened next is actually even, even more significant. Because in this process, CPL is, like, doesn't just become um, his, his becoming a friend of Anne makes him an enemy to everyone else that he knows. So he ends up like never finding a church again that really works for him. He doesn't totally feel at home in Anne's historically black church definitely is not welcome in the white church. He's kicked out of the, the white, all white union. He's a part of loses friends. He's never invited to another family gathering. And so there's this, this real, this profound sense of the life that is left behind. And then at the end, at his funeral, um, there's this just beautiful story of the, uh, funeral director saying, you know, where, um, I'm sorry, this, this section is, is only for family is in Atwater's walking into the chapel and, uh, and, and turns to this funeral director and says, that's my brother. And, and, and sits in the family section, um, where this largely absent. Yeah. So, so I think that for me, this, um, I, what I love about the story is it, it, it sort of puts flesh on the bones of that, of, of Jesus continual repetition of you will be divided from your families, right? This, um, as not just, you know, biological or even chosen family, but like you will be, your life will be cleaved apart by, 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 because again, this is a, this is a material commitment that you're making to the gospel. Um, and so, this is the expectation. You're, we're going to be CPLs um, at some point with, and we'll find, and we're going to find new, new communities, new families, new, new lives to unite our lives too. So um, read Melissa's book so you could ruin your life just like CPLs. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, but not really. I mean, I do think that there is something like, you know, in, in that chapter of the book you hit at something that's really sacred to people that they should have their family ties be almost like, 
you know, incorruptible or impenetrable to these sort of conflicts that no matter what, we're still family, no matter if we believe different things, even radically different things, that somehow those those bonds are sacred and should never be crossed. Uh, So I guess I'm curious what you think the, what makes the difference for C.P. Ellis? Because it doesn't sound like he... You know, he doesn't go to grad school and then have an awakening about his whiteness. He doesn't like even necessarily take on or like the living experience of the conditions of of blackness in in Durham. So, in your opinion, what uh, what do you think sparks the transformation for him? Yeah, you know, I I I don't know. Um, I think that we one of the what do we want to hear, or is that there's something about proximity, right? That he hears from, from Ann Atwater. He hears from this community. There's empathy that, that occurs. That, that's possible that that, that had something to do, that had something to do with this. But I mean, sometimes it just feels like a miracle, right? That like to be able to, to really cut through that deeply, um, I really just it there is it does feel like there's something miraculous about that that um yeah and I I do think that we want and I wish you know there there could be like a, oh well here are the steps you know to mm-hmm. and I think this is why 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 it is why this is such a difficult question right now like how do we um because we want there to be something that works right and I think that comes from a very deep place of longing. Like I would like to know what I have to say to the, to the parents of trans kids who don't get this, like what kind of like, they literally live with these children and are willing to abandon them. Like talk about proximity. Like how can you get any more approximate? Like the middle, like your friggin' child. Right. So, so it's just so hard because I, we, the longing that we have for to, for people to be able to be broken out of these just entrenched systems of enmity. I think that longing is really real, but it, it also just feels so elusive um, about what actually is like, like what breaks people open. Yeah. Go ahead, CJ. Oh, I was going to say, I was going to say, Isaac, I know, I think I'm the person who always ends up saying this. I was like, it was Jesus. Jesus convicted him. That's what happened. <laughs> well, I think... Melissa, some of what you just said, it it does make me think of um, some of the desire that we see driving people towards Jesus in the gospels. Like if I can just touch like the hem of his cloak, right? And um, that is, I think, a huge, that longing. I Yeah, I think it is. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm agreeing with you, CJ. I'm, I'm just not articulating it very well. So there, there are a lot of, I mean, every chapter in the book, Melissa, takes on something that seems to be like a third rail for white communities around these questions of power and enemies and entity. And you just, it's like you just put them all in a list that are like, okay, checking them off one at a time as you as you went through them. So I I guess I'm curious about which chapter was the most difficult to write? Which one are you like most anxious to to hear feedback on? Like, because you do just hit so many really intense topics for people. I knew that I couldn't write this book without talking about the enmity between uh, Jesus and the Jewish leaders. 
And that is such a difficult conversation to have for about a million different reasons. Um, and I, that was the one where I had Jewish friends read it. And like that, I mean, went through so many edits going back again, someone would give me something else to read. And, and of course this is not a, a monolithic community or, you know, there's, there's like a lot of different like ideas and viewpoints. And so how to do that justice and without, and I think the, you know, one of the, what I wanted to do about the book was to, to not look away from, from these really hard questions. And I think especially as someone who is deeply involved in interfaith work in the Jewish community. And the, what I found it was difficult about that is both saying the new, the new Testament gets this wrong sometimes, like not to exonerate the, the new Testament from, um, from times where the, the gospel itself does not live up to its own, its own way of being good news to, to be, to treat the history well of, of anti-Semitism and its connection to the dominant church. Um, and, and at the same time, like, talk about, be able to talk about difference, right? Like that, like there can be, there are also times where there can be difference without enmity. And this just feels like a place where I um, required the absolutely the most care and um, research and prayer and gnashing of teeth and feeling just um, kind of overwhelmed by the, by the prospect of it. Yeah, when I read that chapter, I I thought it was really, I mean, I thought it was extremely well done. But also, I, I that's definitely the one I would name. I think as like maybe the most difficult for for a lot of folks who might agree with you on any of the other ones, mainly because it, it especially in progressive circles, there it seems like a lot of that dynamic in the New Testament and in the Old has just kind of become like off limits for. Uh, not not for discussion, but maybe for interpretation and application. You know how what does it look like for a like an intimate conversation where enmity is at play or or begins to enter uh, enter the conversation and and create yeah difficult and unpleasant results. So I you know I think that you've kind of established this reputation now maybe with with one book and then now with another of of taking on some of these difficult texts that a lot of Christians don't know how to how to make sense of what drives you to do that what is your approach to you know you talked about all the research and scholarship that it, that you put into that chapter what's your approach to like sort of incorporating all the things that people need to know without at the same time sort of creating a power dynamic by like Hey, elite education is helping me understand this. That if you don't have it, then you can't read these without potentially causing harm or other mm-hmm. other sort of pitfalls. There. That's yeah. That's always a difficult question. It's it's difficult in preaching. It's difficult in teaching. And you know, one of the you know, I I think it's the 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 biggest concern I have, and something that. I, I feel on guard against a lot is that, well, if you actually just knew how things were in, this, in the first century, then, then surely you would understand all of this. Um, and, and, and I think that um, there are times where it, it is actually important for us to go back and say, because we, 
you know, we need to understand. So for instance, in that chapter, it's really important for us, us to understand that there's a lot of conflict between Jesus and the various teachers of the law, Sadducees, Pharisees. And there's a lot of conflict between other, like between these groups as well. Like this is, this is just a highly, people are working out their identity after the temples um, destroyed and trying to figure out like what Judaism is right now. Um, I, and so, so some, sometimes the narrative that we've had passed on to us, um, especially when it comes to anti-Judaism, which becomes anti-Semitism is so deep that we do have to go back and do some of this recovery work um, because it's just not getting passed down to us. Um, I do think it's, I think everything we need is in the text. Like you can already see like the conflicts that are happening between John the Baptist and which may be the Essenes, right? And the, or the, and, and, the, and the Pharisees who are coming from Jerusalem. So I think it's already there. Um, Sometimes it's just pulling it out, and that's sort of what the what the study can do for us. Sometimes, though, it's honestly just to to legitimate it, right? Um, mm-hmm. That we do live in a culture of expertise, um, and I think this is important enough that, like, saying lots of people think this um, is is significant for the, the, the how serious this is for how we live today. Mm-hmm. You know, I this may be, I don't know, feel free to correct this question if it comes from the from like a completely wrong angle, but it seems to me that you're more attuned to some of these questions about like inter intercommunal disagreements because of your location in the history of Anabaptism, where like, you know, you, one of the great, one of the very helpful comparisons you make in that chapter is just to the like conflicts between different Christian denominations today, and I think it's it's helpful not only because it it helps kind of give context that people can understand that is accurate, but I think also it's helpful because so many of our conflicts in denominations right now are about power and you know how they're structured and everything else. So I, I'm you know, is do you agree that that your perspective on on that entity is shaped a little bit by the tradition of Anabaptism and historically? Yes, I think so. Um, it, once you sort of get into the the conflicts and yeah, it, it, it's pretty clear that some of these conflicts that we're reading about in Acts and the Gospels are, have, have much stronger parallels to our own um, debates within within Christianity about who we are. Um, try to I don't want to overwhelm that metaphor, but I think it's probably been, probably the closest we can get to trying to understand those internal conflicts that we hear happening in in the New Testament. Um, yeah, and then you know it gets yeah, and it, it, these in Anabaptism. I'm just reading about Michael Sattler's. Um, martyrdom was was um, last week, and one of the charges against him is the denial of the imperial edict. Like he doesn't, he won't take up the imperial mandate, which is the same charge that they um, they charge Muslims with at that time. Um, oh. And so, even sort of like 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 the 
but even religious identities, right, are, are don't really exist at this time. These are this 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 category of religion that we have is is really something that's created again with the civilization, right? We need something to categorize certain things that don't make sense within Enlightenment rationalism, and so all of this sort of being tied together, like the ability to parse out something religious from the rest of your life, that comes much later. And and so, yeah, I think we're, once you start to sort of get into how how all of this actually has to do um, with, with economics and citizenship and class and sexuality and gender identity, I think that begins to sort of open our eyes up to not really siloing this as just an interreligious conflict that's happening at this time. So there's a chapter in the book about Mary, uh, which is awesome, but maybe a little unexpected for people hearing you talk about your Anabaptist roots. Why, what does Mary uh, teach us about having enemies? I, I, I am trying to, to reclaim some uh, Mariology for, for Anabaptism. So we'll see if this... Um, helps the cause along. Um, one of the losses of the um, split of Anabaptism from the Catholic Church is that is that we do lose, it's, it's sort of a baby out with the bathwater when it comes to Mary. Um, so this very sort of reactionary movement that then displaces Mary from anything within our theology which is problematic because Mary is such a central figure in um, the movement work the, of, for liberation for, you know, since, since the birth of the church. Um, and so I, I wanted to specifically name those communities that are often led by women who have found in Mary a, a place to identify their anger and for anger to form a community. And I, I love those stories because we, the, the, so often, again, especially in Anabaptism, the narrative we get is that, that anger is destructive, it's violent, it, it's like it burns things down. Um, and actually the, the way, like the, the fire of Mary's politics is that it's like a, like a, like a fire that people gather around um, that, that provides warmth, that, um, that lights the way. Um, and so I, I think what we can, we can actually sort of have a historic narrative through time about people who've taken up the Magnificat and said, this is actually a, like a, this is a, this is a form of politics. Um, and it means something for our lives. You know, I think that after the Chauvin trial, uh, finished and the, the verdict came down, finding him guilty, I, I remember listening to Biden's comments and basically, you know, he just reiterates again after a kind of like proclaiming victory for the system. See, it worked this one time. We told you it could work. Like we got, we got our guy or whatever. He goes back to saying like, there's never an excuse for violence in uprising. There's never an excuse for like property damage. Basically, he's saying like, Hey, we got the outcome we wanted. And even though it depended on like a global uprising of 25 million people and property damage and all this stuff, there's never any excuse for anger. There's never any place for it. Uh, 
And I think that 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 kind of whitewashing of the role that anger played in getting that verdict, which isn't even justice. It's just like maybe accountability. Yeah, it, it just shows how quickly we can we can like try to paper over the role that it plays. Yeah, and and this is where you know sort of the there's a chapter in the book about the the psalms of we call them imprecatory psalms. They're not really curses, but um, it, you know this debate that we have in the church. Uh, about whether we should pray those or, or how we should pray them or should we pray them in public and 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 I think it again it's sort of reflective of that of that what like stripping away the the parts that these very human parts these human experiences that are preserved for us um because sometimes this is all that's left right this is there there are no uh, there's nothing else to do there are you that even if there is something to do, the loss is so great that there is um, that this is sort of the end of the line for for who you were before this thing happened. And yeah, so just wanted to have a conversation again about about why we had why the divine hours have taken those out and and why the revised common lectionary stops before we get to bashing in the heads of of Babylonian babies or like. What what actually is like? What does that mean for us? Um, that that we've sort of insulated ourselves, so we we don't have to we don't have to look on that and imagine where we are um, in those psalms. Yeah, one of the things you do specifically kind of break down though is the difference between individual anger and like cultivating collective anger within communities. Could you like describe some of that for the listeners? Because I found it a really really helpful distinction because I know in in my own response to injustice, a lot of the time when my anger sort of stays within myself, I find it to be a pretty destructive force for like my spiritual well-being or even how, you know, I uh how I treat others in, in conversations that are contested or where enmity is is present and, and being contested. So um yeah I would love for you to sort of expand on that distinction for people. But it's it it helps that I'm a pretty solid sectarian. So my ideas about church are not that we try to get as many ideas and diverse opinions as possible. That that church is actually a place to cultivate anger, um, a, a particular kind of anger, and actually is is the place where you can say this is this is what I'm angry about. How do I how do I process that um, that anger? What does it mean for me? Um, is it displaced? Is it something that I need that like needs for us to turn into the energy to to change something in our world or in ourselves? When is anger doesn't go away, right? Like it's it doesn't just dissipate because people push it down or pretend it doesn't ha- pretend it's not happening. Um, it just emerges in other places, um, and so yeah, I was fascinated by the stories of of collective anger and how anger was, you know, and this is where Audre Lorde's um, uses of anger, but I think it's such a helpful text for us um, that we, instead of sort of trying to, trying to get that anger to be dissipated or to push it down, that it actually becomes something that, that forms us. Um, And 
one of the images that she uses is like it shines a spotlight on the on the things that need on the things that are wrong rather than sort of just helping us get through to the next to the next thing like what's what's really happening here um and i that's my vision for the church is a place where we can be angry about the same things and angry about the things that jesus was angry about and use that as a sort of our, our own sort of litmus for how how to be angry and how to be angry and what to be angry about together. That's I'm I haven't read the book. I don't know if I've told that for, to the listeners yet. So I have not read the book. So I'm really excited to read that because that's a really helpful framing for me, um, especially because like I when I was so I was a missionary um, when I was 21 and in our training they told us that anger is a secondary emotion. And so a part of our training was if we're feeling anger to like go back and see like what the source emotion for that was, because we're actually feeling like sad or or hungry or whatever, because I was hungry all the time. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Because we were not fed very well. Um, But, but it was, but I also like, I was, I was angry all the time on that trip. And I just, I don't know if you've seen a hot rod. No, I was incandescent with rage. Um, and, but I looked around at my Christian community and, and a feedback that I got often was, why are you so angry? Or you need to fix that anger. Um, and I didn't understand why the people around me weren't angry at the same things. Um, which I, I, I think that's true also in a lot of the con- church context that I'm in currently, uh, even though it's not the same as the missionary context. And so I'm really excited to read that and to hear you expand on that. Because it seems like it would be uh, sort of revolutionary for like a lot of churches. Especially in a time where the like language of allyship has taken on this very clear delineation of white people saying to black people, I will not get angry with you. Like, you know, I see your anger and I can't understand it, but I'm listening. You know, it's literally a refusal to, to co- you know, to collectively create that communal anger out of some sort of misguided notion of helping. You know, like, but, but it's white people literally saying, I'm putting up a fundamental barrier between me and your anger, but somehow it'll be helpful despite the fact that I have no intention of joining you in that place. Yeah, I, Willie Jennings, I think, has wrote the most useful thing on this, on this that I, I have read. Um, I think I quote it in the intro as sort of like a foundational thing. And then again in the chapter, um, he talks about how he's had conversations like this where people will say to him, I know you can't know how, I, I can never know how you feel. And, but like, I'm with you. And his response is like, you need to take a hold of my anger. Like this is like, you need to hold, standing at a distance from my anger doesn't help me. Like I need to share my anger with you. You need to figure out what it means for you to take, for white people to take hold of black anger and make it our own. Um, which, was so which which felt very freeing for me because I think there is that sense of yeah that like when we when we sort of shift this to this is like the the racial frame is actually bad for all of us um and has created destruction um across our communities across our cities across our country 
I am mad about that. I am mad about my ancestral participation in that. I'm I'm mad that I continue to be um, expected to participate in 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 racialized economics. I'm mad that I can't like that. There's not like a button I can push to extract myself from it. I'm mad for what happened to George Floyd. I'm mad about what's happening in my own community. Um, and yeah, and so standing apart from that anger, really Jennings would say, doesn't actually do anybody any good. It's just, it's just a way to sort of emotionally disconnect. Well, I, I've been experiencing that reaction in Knoxville because last month a black teenager was killed by the police in the bathroom of his high school. And, you know, his name is Anthony Thompson Jr. And and I've been working with black clergy and activists in the city to, you know, try to, this is a city that doesn't have a long history of like very intense protests, like some other key places in the South. Um, partially because it is so intensely segregated. And so I've been coming together to support the people who are calling for any kind of accountability. And the thing that's so incredibly frustrating about the response of of like total uh, just sort of apathy from from white clergy and white Christians in, in the midst of that is that he was in the bathroom because he had gotten in an altercation with with his girlfriend. And like uh, earlier that day at school, she had gone home and told the mom and the mom called the police and then told him that the police were coming to arrest him at the school. So he went and like, and got a gun and went into this bathroom. And so the fact that he had a gun basically meant that you know, there's not a basically mo- 99% of white people in Knoxville were like, oh, well, he deserved to get killed. But the thing that kills me, that just like makes me absolutely furious about it is that when the body cam footage was finally released of, of the incident, no one spoke to him. He was walking around his high school for hours without a teacher, without a principal, without anyone speaking to him, not even the police when they walk into the bathroom where he is. They don't say a thing. No one tries to mediate the circumstance. They just tell him to stand up and put his hands behind his back. And 10 seconds later, he's dead. Mm-hmm. And just the fact that white people can't, you know, if I thought about my son being killed and no one took the time to try to say a word to him beforehand to like resolve the situation any other way, it makes me furious. And, you know, just I, I've had it's been a really sort of soul-shaking reality to see folks just not be able to put themselves in the place of his parents. Like if, if someone killed your child without even trying to speak to them, you know, the rage you would feel about having your son's life taken that way. I mean, it, it just, um, it's been frustrating to see white folks, even sympathetic white folks feel like they're doing the right thing by distancing themselves from that from that reality. So I, it, I do agree with CJ that it's a really needed chapter in the book. Mm-hmm. Somebody else asked a question because now I've made myself too angry. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is how it goes on until we get canceled pod. <laughs> uh, so this is an interesting question that Isaac actually wrote. So I wanted to give you props on that. But uh, you did mention this earlier, Melissa, that, uh, that you are like you use the expertise model and you mentioned like because 
uh, there's power in saying lots of people believe this, but you also are a proponent of kind of leveling the interpretive playing field. And so maybe you could talk a little bit about um, what that looks like in your, in your teaching and preaching. So one of the, in the real innovations of Anabaptism was moving to a, a communal hermeneutic that we, we have a collectivist understanding of interpreting scripture. And so, so that, that's formed me from very early on about what, what it means to be someone who, um, yeah, who, who leads a congregation basically as an interpretive community. Um, and so I, I do think that there, that one of the sort of the, the things that often runs through my mind when I'm going to use an expert or I'm looking at the Hebrew of something or, you know, I, I always, it's actually, it, would somebody who is listening to this or receiving this or participating in this conversation, this discernment of scripture, if they didn't have a lot of education, if they were a grandmother, um, who had did daily Bible readings and had a sixth grade education because she dropped out to be a field worker and took care of her kids and faithfully read her Bible devotionally every day of her life. Um, would she feel silly or uneducated or ashamed to, to hear, to hear this? Would this, um, is this a way to put myself in a position of power? Or is this something that would help that grandmother to feel like she had more tools or more um, like a, a deeper um, devotional connection to who Jesus was? Um, and so I have that, that grandmother lives in my head um, in my preaching and teaching. Um, she's always with me, um, sort of as the place of, yeah, of, of, of checking myself. Um, am I just doing this to sort of, feel smart or to, to justify something that's like complicated or does this actually create and give life and expand and help us to be able to talk more with one another, um, to give us more things that, that we share in common. I may have missed it, but did you say, um, I, I love the term communal hermeneutic. Um, do you, does that m mainly for your work, I guess, in like, in, in the congregation setting, or do you expand that out into like Twitter and, and social media uh, and is it kind of all inclusive? I guess because I, I see a lot of pastors that I think only focus on that congregational side, but I, I, I can see how it might be interesting and actually more difficult if it was more widespread. I do think that there are lots of uh, lots of ways to make that more more expansive and yeah, and different mediums are better or worse for that. And um, I think it definitely takes the most substantial space in our congregational life where after every sermon, um, we have a time for the congregation to interpret the scripture together. Sort mm -hmm. of um, the commonplace is the sermon. And then we have opportunities to listen for how the Holy Spirit is moving through us in our common interpretation of what that means for our lives. So it's certainly, but I, but I think it's a disposition that I take into other spaces as well. Um, maybe just not as defined. That's a good segue into sort of this, a discussion about where the book and, and everything we've talked about kind of um, challenges, I, I think, a lot of foundations for 
the way people think about church. And I wanted to, if it's okay, just like read uh, a few sentences from the book that I found uh, that I think are particularly striking and I'd love to have everybody talk about. So this is a, a quote from... Maybe the second to last chapter in the book. I should have written that down. I'm sorry, Melissa, if you <laughs> want to correct me when you, when you do it, then that's I great. I have no idea. <laughs> okay. But it's near the end of the book. Um, so yeah, every, this is a, a quote from Melissa's book. She's talking about uh, Matthew 25, the famous parable of, of the sheep and the goats in this. From this passage, we learn that there is enough evidence in the suffering of the world for people to encounter and love Jesus. We don't require doctrines or creeds. We should not need miraculous visitations or stirring teachings. There is enough suffering in the world that people do not need to be convinced or educated into aligning their lives on the side of those who are victims in the old order of power. I think, so. <laughs> I mean, it, it's such that sentence, I think strikes at the heart of a lot of people's response to the movement for Black Lives over 2020 was to basically like, you know, form a reading group or attend a grad grad seminar or maybe even go to graduate school. Like, so why are we always trying to make things, you know, our response to anti-racist work or our entry into those things more complicated than exactly what you just said? Um, You know, I do think that there is a strong sense within liberalism generally, but especially liberal uh, liberalism in the church that you can read your way out, hmm. right? This is very, very strong. You can educate yourself out of the problem. Uh, and so, and there's there's been some really important critical work that's been done around anti-racism literature of this of this kind of this ilk and and i and i think that is that's absolutely reflected back in in the church um that we if you get your heart right right like if i if i have a certain if i can get racist thoughts out of my mind or or even move into like if I can just not have not do microaggressions anymore or I can diversify my board um which hey you should do that those things are those things are really important and that is that does not get to the like the structural formations of 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 how we got to this point um and it's going to just, and that's going to continue to happen unless we're really willing to sort of do a deep dive into what this means for our economics, what this means for our ideas about what safety are. Um, but yeah, I think that that persistence of um, reading, reading your way out of the problem um, is really strong. And a couple sentences down from that, though, you say we aren't expected to get, to get it right all the time. And I think that's a huge learning curve for a lot of progressive uh, communities is that there's not a lot of grace, patience, space for getting things wrong at times. Uh, I don't want to go too far down that <laughs> to say, because I think that at some point, you know, being corrected and then learning is has to happen. So the people, I'm not talking about people that just constantly make the same mistakes, but I'm, I'm eternally frustrated when somebody who feels, especially after in like in the wake of George Floyd, there were a lot of white people who suddenly felt um, like they want, they wanted to be a part of this. And then 
they started asking questions or th- saying things that were ultimately kind of cringy and maybe not the right thing, uh, but they were doing it in all white spaces. And they were kind of, there, was a, there was some shunning that was happening, like, well, you can't, don't know, that's completely wrong. And so they just checked out immediately. And so I, I, to me, like that idea of like being able to allow people to have the space to get it wrong a little bit too has to be a part of that. Uh, I don't know if, what, if, I might be over-relating to that one line in the, in the little snippet that Isaac sent us. But I, that, that to me has always been something that it's like, I want to I have space for people in my life who don't automatically know the right opinion to be able to kind of grow into that opinion or to grow into that space. Yeah, I, I think my experience is that you're like a, like a lived solidarity of um, that, that, that's like, that's, that's how you build trust, right? Which, which makes, I, I do think that there is sort of, and I think this gets back to one of the criticisms of anti-racism liter- as, a liter- as a literary form. Um, when it gets to be more about getting the words right, right? Like, I know that there was um, I know an anti-racism group that that like there was a whole class focused on whether we use BIPOC or POC, right? Like that was like the whole hour um, of of this class, and a lot of like frustration and fear about getting this wrong. And as like, or you know, we can talk about what it means to um, oppose the five million dollar raise in the budget for Raleigh Police Department, right? Like. Um, like I like that. The, like you you only have so much time on this earth. Like let's like get <laughs> on down to city council and like make this happen. Or like we need a a CIT model that's not under the police department. That's under our Department of Health and Human Services. Like hey, how about this? Um, yeah. Yeah. So I don't. You know, I I also worry about about people sort of feeling feeling trapped in the language and and also what it means to to create communities where people can mess up and and be and be able to come back from that. I think that's much more real in in real world than in like social media spaces. Um, there's like there's actually been some really good work around um, like cancel culture and in emergent strategy world. Um, Adrian Marie Brown wrote a book about this. And so it's not as if these conversations are not happening in sort of the in abolition movements either. Um, and I think there's, this is also a reminder of just like this, the expansiveness of the space of the work that's going on around um, intersectional liberation. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think what's so devastating for folks who want to kind of read their way out or have those long detailed sort of ideological discussions is that the people in that parable don't know what they're doing. (laughs) They don't have the knowledge, right? They're completely ignorant that they're serving Christ by doing this. So then it comes to this question of what exactly are they doing? Because they're just meeting the needs of these folks, right? I mean, it, that's the thing about it is that we we turn anti-racist work into this sort of amorphous thing where we don't know what to do when if you just ask, what do you need? And then do it. Like, that's the only requirement. Like, that's literally the only thing needed. And then later you find out like, uh, you know, over time or whatever, like, wow, the significance of this, I had no, no clue at the time, but it like, I didn't have to, to just respond to a need. Uh, yeah, I, and this is, I mean, this is what I feel about, this is very similar to abolition work, right? Like we're like, oh, defund the police. And you're like, 
do you have laws that criminalize homelessness? Like, have, do you, like, is the only, is the crime that is being committed that you don't have a place to live? Like, maybe you should do something about that. Like, like, that's not like, like, you know, there's all the, there's, I, I love how there's one of the images of, of abolition work is like, you're actually just collecting, like, like, um, collecting different practices along the way. Like you're, you, um, it's not like an end goal. It's actually just something where you're collecting things over time. Um, and so like having, like having, oper- having kids be fed in schools, um, or they're, or like, um, dealing with suspension policies that are racialized, like that's abolition work. Uh, housing justice is abolition work. Like all of this is like, we don't need to make this more complicated than it is. What I do, when I talk to people about abolition, one of the things I say is like, what are you already doing? And here's like the, the like turn this about two degrees and you're, you're in abolition work. Like this is, you're, you're already there. And let's make these connections and talk about what this means in terms of policies around policing. But it really doesn't need, yeah. When we turn back to this question of like, what does it mean to be human beings flourishing in the world? That's that's before us, right? Isaac, I, I want to. I, I think what you said, "What do you need?" and then do it. It's like super profound. I mean, it sounds stupid to say that, but I think that is like super profound and would be like crazy for most churches to like hear that, right? Like you have entire budgets and like plans for doing mission and stuff, and almost never does that question actually get asked. Um, and and that that's the response. So I I, I just wanted to, to highlight that because I think you know I've just I've sat through enough mission meetings that are like you know days long of like retreats and stuff. And the question of like being in the community and asking like what do you need, and then actually stepping up to that and not having some kind of agenda is is so it's like radical, which sounds so stupid. Uh, but anyway, I just wanted to lift it up because I thought it was important to say it again. Well, that's, I mean, that's the sad shit about so much church work, right? Is that it's yes. a group of people who, you know, have heard about a problem in their community that they have no attachment to, most likely, and then deciding what needs to be done about it <laughs> instead of going and asking, you know? I mean, it, it, you can like, yeah, you can just say, hey, we're going to go to this group of people that need help and say, what do you need? And then no matter if we don't know a thing about how to help, once they tell us the need, we're just going to do it. We're not going to like shrink away. We're not going to say, actually, we'd rather do this. We're just going to show up. I mean, I, I, I tried to say this to a clergy person who was like talking to me about whether or not it was appropriate for clergy to be in at these protests in Knoxville. And I was like, I don't really give a shit how you feel about whether or not the shooting of this kid was justified. There are people hurting and they're saying they need this stuff. So like show up for that. You know, it I mean, on some level, it's completely immaterial how you feel about what happened, as long as like as a clergy person, you feel that God is calling you to be present when people in your community are angry and suffering. But I I would, you know, for folks out there who who think the answer to, I mean, I think there are a lot of mainline, especially young people who are going to seminary or changing denominations or all this stuff because they think that that faith or doctrine is the answer out of these sort of issues. So Melissa, when they read your, read this quote and, and think that you're like taking too much away or like reducing things down or like, you know, maybe even, a you know, thinking that you're like 
getting rid of the spiritual side of of faith? Like, how do you respond to that? Yeah, I mean, it, this is, I, I mean, I just, I hate to be like this, but like, this is what Jesus says in the Bible, right? I'm like, yeah, well, sorry if you don't like that. Um, it's, uh, yeah, and, but again, it's sort of this, um, you know, we talked about sort of that creation of the category of religion that there's like, you know, your life and then like your spirit and these kind of things are all, you know, so, but that's, you know, I, once we start, begin to have this conversation about everything in our lives is religious, is political, is like all of this is intertwined in who we are. And that, and so I don't, I don't, I don't know if there's over and over again, Jesus' concern is with what people do with their lives, right? And that, and that is, um, and what it means to believe is to trust God to live this life that is not going to make sense with the powers of this world. And the only way for you to believe is to, is to live in such a way that you are, it is clear that that domination is no longer how you set, um, how you set out the goals of your life. Instead, something else is happening. This, this reign of God has come. Um, and, and I, and I think what, what I, you know, is sort of thinking about that concern, you know, this is life and life abundant. Um, this is, this is actually the good life. Like this is, um, you know, that CPL story is hard, but it's not as hard as living your life as the grand cyclops of the Ku Klux Klan. That is actually hell on earth. Yeah. <laughs> Right, that like we like following God. This, this I, I love it. Carl Bart says this is a um, you may. It's not a you must. You may like like you get to be a part of this. Like you are no longer defined by how much money you make or like what your family connections are um, or the expectations about how your gendered body acts in the world like you are freed from that into this um freed for freedom liberated for liberation that's where the good news of this is from um it's not in continuing to sort of keep people like keep people connected to this ideology that keep that keeps us in line right that 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 sets up some rules for us some foundational principles or morals right like this is a new life. Um, and I want that for I want that for me. I want that for everybody. Well, I think what's scary about what you write there is that it doesn't let people off the hook. And I think it also raises these really intense questions about what's going on when people see those things and they don't care. Mm-hmm. And you address that at near the end of the book in a chapter on whiteness and, and a comparison. Uh, to whiteness is like a type of sort of demonic possession. We were talking earlier about what if they have what may have happened to C.P. Ellis. I mean, I think if you tie those chapters together, the answer might be he had an exorcism. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so can you talk just for the sake of Brian and C.J. who who haven't gone through that? Can I don't know. I mean, is the you know what is going on with folks who are seeing the suffering and are like unmoved by it un, and, or at least not moved to action it took a long time especially in that chapter of whiteness to to find the right metaphors so i think you know our 
our words create worlds. And, and so what, what's the right metaphor that actually sort of gets to the... And, and so I had this um, given to me through my reading, which was um, the idea of possession. Um, that we sort of had this idea that, that in, in this chapter, and I think this is with a lot, of, a lot of systems of oppression we find ourselves in as part of the old order of sin and death, but, but race in particular, like what's a metaphor that doesn't essentialize race, um, but still gives it that, that still names it with the, with the power that we don't, that is somehow outside of our control. And so the, the metaphor of possession is one that I kept hearing Black writers talk about when they talked about whiteness. Um, and so that's where I sort of wanted to, to dig in. Um, whiteness is an enemy, but an enemy that, that possesses white people. Um, and so I, you know, tried to, tried to think about that chapter also as the other thing about possession is that we, like you're kind of what you're saying, like we cannot, you cannot unpossess yourself, right? Like there is, um, Jesus had to heal people of this demonic possession. Like the, the disciples are able to heal people of demonic possession. Um, and so to be able to sort of both recognize it, recognize this happening within ourselves, but also see it as that, as a force. Um, and so that, that's sort of what the metaphor I landed on. Okay. Speaking of demonic possession, <laughs> do we have time for a fight corner? I, we're coming up on like an hour 15 here. Um, and I don't want to cut short the discussion if you want to keep going, Isaac. Uh, no, I would just add that, you know, my, my response to, to that metaphor, when you're thinking biblically about some of the ways that possession is described in the New Testament, especially, and then I think about pastors who literally cannot speak to their congregation about racism or white supremacy without fear of having their livelihood taken away. I mean, that is being possessed, it's having your mouth stopped. Like you cannot speak because you're being held captive by this fear around what people will do to you if you tell them the truth. I mean, it, so yeah, I, I really appreciate the way you, you put it, Melissa, that they're not free. You're not free if, that's, if those are the working conditions that you're in. And, um, you know, God, like, however we feel about the church, like surely the role of a, of a clergy person inside of it is meant for way more than that. Um, it is meant for that freedom. And so it's it just like something that grieves me to, to see to see the fear of, of sort of stepping over that line have so much control. Yeah. Okay, CJ, take us to the fight <laughs> corner. <laughs> Melissa, if you're unaware, the fight corner is where I invite my enemies to fight me <laughs> in the parking lot of the Chili's in Denton, Texas. <laughs> Just wow. imagine like the worst vibes possible outside of the Chili's. That's where we're at right now. And usually, so this one is special for Brian because uh, I was going to do it last week, but I, I thought he wasn't going to be there. So this is a true demon. Tony LaRussa, meet me in the Chili's parking lot. Uh, we are fighting. Oh no. Yeah. This is not good. Uh, so some background. So Tony LaRussa is the current manager, which is like the head coach of the Chicago White Sox. Uh, one of two baseball teams in the city of Chicago. Famously, it's on the South side, um, which is the, uh, 
Brian, correct me if I'm wrong, but as I understand it, like the Cubs are more like the upper class team. The White Sox are more like the lower class team as far as fans go. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if I want to answer that since I'm a White Sox fan, but I think why that, do people like the Cubs? Yes, that's it. There, well, yeah, and I grew up on the South Side of Chicago, so there you go. Yeah, I, just, uh, I, I was like, I don't class. know anything about Chicago. I would say it's working class versus slat like the frat boy type of like Lake Forest upper North Side of Chicago. So that would okay, be well, this will become important later. So the thing <laughs> about Tony Larusa, the reason he is in, he is invited to fight me in the Chili's parking lot. This man is 76 years old. He is a 76-year-old white man. He was retired. Uh, he has he'd been a manager for several teams before this. He'd been a player. The day before he was rehired by the White Sox, he got arrested for his second DUI. Um, he had very publicly had a DUI when he was manager, uh, I think for the Rays. So this is like, alcoholism is a serious thing, but like drunk driving is so bad and it maybe should reflect on your fitness to be the head of an organization if you're on your second DUI as a 76-year-old man. <laughs> anyway, so that was like, it was started off bad. And then he later uh, revealed to a room full of reporters that he doesn't know the current rules of baseball, which a casual, there's been a lot of changes. So a casual fan may not know the rules of the game, but he is the manager. Can't emphasize enough, he's the manager. So I'm, I'm really mad at him about that. <laughs> but... The reason I'm inviting him to fight me is because, so he is both a tea partier. Uh, he attended Glenn Beck rallies publicly when he was a manager for the Arizona D-backs. Uh, he made some really strong anti-immigrant statements when he was living in Arizona. So that's not good. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm trying to like give this a, a narrative, but I hate him so much. The thing is, okay, so the White Sox are the best team in the American League right wait, now. Wait, like, wait, what? Say it again statistically and also just like spirit wise, the White Sox are the best team in Sorry, the American wanted, League. Wanted on record for at least once. There you go. Up, above the Royals, which are my team. Um, this is in spite of Tony La Russa's yes. like baffling decisions. Like every, every good thing about the White Sox is in spite of Tony La Russa. That's true. Um, he was hired by the White Sox's owner, Jerry Reinsdorf. If you've watched the Michael Jordan documentary, same guy, he's in there. Also owns the Bulls. But so uh, because Larissa was hired directly by the owner, the management doesn't like him and the players don't like him. So it puts in a really kind of like weird position team-wise, which means that like every Buckwild decision he's made like reflects very strangely on the team and kind of it puts him in this even more adversarial relationship with the players, which kind of came to a head when uh, your mean Mercedes hit like a routine home run a couple weeks ago. They were winning 15 to four. Your mean Mercedes hit a home run off of a position player who was pitching <laughs> and everyone got mad. On a 3-0 pitch. On a 3-0 pitch. Yeah. I don't want to get into like the nitty gritty of like baseball rules and like strategy right now because I know people find it boring. But anyway, he hit a home run. It's what baseball players are supposed to fucking do. <laughs> and then... Um, Tony La Russa and like the White Sox announcers, like several old white men were like, this isn't how we play the game. It goes against the culture of the game to hit a home run on a 3-0 pitch against a guy who's bad at pitching. Who's not even a <laughs> and, pitcher who literally threw yeah. a 47 mile an hour pitch 
Like he's a second baseman and he threw a 47 mile per, per hour pitch. And I want everyone to know that like I could hit that right now. I could like, throw that, that right now. That is the speed of an above average high school softball yes. pitcher. Like yeah. it is, it is not hard to hit. Like this man's a professional baseball player. And, um, and so Tony LaRusa completely threw his own player under the bus. He was like, this isn't how we play the game. He said, we'll definitely have a talk about it. To the This man is a grown man. Like, are you? what are you going to talk to him about? Are you going to take away his batting privileges? Like, what? <laughs> he also... But, oh, oh, go ahead, go ahead. No, sorry. No, so the no. next day, you're probably going to say this, but the next day, then he defended because they threw at him. Like, this is this is all... Basically, this is just me and CJ's, like, texts that we send back and forth <laughs> about well, yeah. baseball. But he threw so at then, him. Oh, yeah, ahead. the other team threw at him. So, like, he could have been actually seriously hurt. Um, and his own manager, the guy who was supposed to have his best interests at heart, like, defended the other team throwing at him. I... The thing is... <laughs> Tony Larusa, like, who cares what we think? What this man thinks about the culture of the game? He is vi- virulently xenophobic. Like, the culture of the game that he's thinking about is the culture of the game as played by white men, and white men are the most boring players in the game. Like, it is—it's such a dog whistle for like this boring, repressed Victorian culture where you have to like pretend you're not a grown man playing a baseball game, like, and you're not allowed to have any fun or feel any emotion on the field. But beyond this, this is a labor issue. Like every every home run that your mean Mercedes hits directly correlates to like thousands of dollars on his next contract. He's going to be in arbitration in three years. He has like a limited amount of time where he is going to be healthy as a player. And Tony La Russa is mad that he is like padding stats on a team that refuses to pitch him. Like if you <laughs> if you want. If you if you don't want people to hit home runs, use a real pitcher. Don't put your second baseman into pitch. Yeah, when I saw it happen, sorry, this is this is like totally <laughs> off. So like nobody's <laughs> listening anymore. CJ, it's just just me and you are the only one that care about this. But I hate him so much. I hate Tony Larusa with so much anger. Yeah. Well, I do too. But you know, you're in that thing of he's winning, so he's probably going to stick around for a little while. Unfortunately, the thing is that the. I, I mean, it just, it reveals so much about the sport of baseball that, like, this is the man that uh, the White Sox have chosen to lead their team right now. When there are, you know, scores of people who are younger, people of color, women, uh, non-binary people who could have had this opportunity to lead an extremely good team that is good in spite of Tony La Russa, that has an incredible bullpen, that has, like, incredible hitters. And they chose this guy to, like... <laughs> so that the team could overcome their own management to be good instead of like actually uplifting new talent. It's, it's so frustrating. And I'm going to, I'm beating him up in a Chili's parking lot, which I could do. I'm, I'm convinced. The revelation of the spring has been CJ's anger towards Major League Baseball in the fight corner. <laughs> Literally all I can do right now is watch baseball. <laughs> what, am I, what else am I supposed to do? Well, I already, so what, we recorded an episode last month with Kelsey McKinney that doesn't come out until June, but I already went on my rant about the white unwritten rules of baseball and why it basically made me stop watching the game. So I'm right there with you. Yeah. Um, 
It's oh, terrible. But that, but like, that was like the first, most exciting thing that's happened the whole baseball season for me is to see him like kind of step into that 3-0 pitch and just crank it. I was like, yes, I was so excited. I was like in bed and my wife was like, What's, what are you doing? I was like, ah, I was like, anyway. And it's like, so it's been great. Like that's the stuff, like they, they're always trying to change these rules to make people, younger people specifically, get back into baseball. And it's like, they just can't get out of their own way. Uh, and Tony LaRusso is not helping, so... Uh, anyway, go Sox, best team in Chicago. That's all I have to say on that matter. Tony Larusa, I know you have the money to fly to DFW <laughs> and fight me in the Chili's parking lot. <sighs> Melissa, I'm so sorry for just going off on baseball for a little while, but thank you so much for coming on. Uh, do you want to plug your books before we go? Yeah, I don't. I didn't know anything that just happened. Um, <laughs> we we should have um, let her plug her books before that. <laughs> yeah, but you seem... Yeah, this seems like a very big problem, and I hope it is solved soon for you. Uh, you all. <laughs> the point of the fight corner is not necessarily big problems; it's just my problems, yes, really. Right, right exactly. <laughs> yeah. No, I. Yeah. Yes, I, I have this book coming out. There's the Kindle version coming out on June first. If you are a e-reader, uh, and then the in hand paper version comes out on July 20th. Well, uh, thanks so much for doing this, Melissa. It's great to have you back on. I do think it's incredible that Jurgen Mercedes could hit a 47 mile per hour pitch because he's used to hitting like 97 mile per hour ones. So I actually do think there's something impressive about it. But also that he hit it for a home run because there's no power behind that pitch. That's all, that's all his core. It's his thick thighs. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. Well, uh, all takes have been revealed and maybe... Maybe more are being revealed every second that this continues. Yes. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, everybody. 